Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So ends the reading of God's word. At this time, kids three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's pray and seek God's face for help to understand and worship over Revelation 3. Father, I thank you for the sermon you gave to us on this passage Several weeks ago through Pastor Ali Mati, I pray that many here who may not have heard that would return to that by recording and enjoy it and find it a compliment to what you have given me from this very same passage today. I pray that you set your blessing on Pastor Andrew Ross as he preaches boldly the gospel to Barnes Community Church right now. And I pray for churches all around the Northland that the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ would shine brightly through the preaching of your word in all of those churches. And I pray for churches around the world, different times of this Lord's Day, that they too would burn brightly with the gospel of the glory of Christ and it would reorient and refashion not just souls but entire church structures and movements and civilizations and epochs of time and populate fully the heaven of your glory. Do 10,000 more things through Revelation 3 than I know to ask or imagine because of your grace, your love, and your mercy present here and overflowing to us through this passage. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers from London in the 1950s and 60s, comes to this passage and he says, this is the saddest passage in the Bible. The saddest passage in the Bible. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. He says it's sad because it's a reference of Jesus talking to the seventh church out of the seven churches he writes to in Revelation. And he says, this church has given over to compromise with the world and it's just about dead this church is completely weak. Laodicea is, is a church, almost become a, a byword, a curse word. We don't want to be Laodicean, and that's what this church is. 
And so he says it's one of the saddest passages in Revelation and in the whole Bible. I don't think it's the saddest. I think it's the most poignant and the most tender and the sweetest. I think this is where Christ comes and you will see as God helps me how sweetly and tenderly he's coming not only to the church at Laodicea when they don't deserve him, but how sweetly he comes to churches all around Asia Minor, around the world, around the Northland, and to this church right now, and to you and to me. He wants to come to you and he wants to revive you. He wants your life to be so white hot with his love that you say, of course, Lord, come into my life. I open the door of my life to you like I never have before. It's a sweet passage. It's a poignant passage, a powerful passage. I love it. It's a passage that's been used throughout the history of the church to awaken dead churches, to awaken dry, dead, boring joyless church. If you ever come up against a joyless church, run. Think of Europe, cathedrals. They're doing other stuff inside the churches to try to make income. They're museums and stuff. Think of churches inside the inner city of every city in this country. They're dead. There once used to be a live congregation there worshiping. God gave the lamp of his spirit and prophecy and truth and glory and gospel was coming. And there were preachers and elders and deacons and ministers of every sort and kind. Now there's nothing but dust. What do we do with this big old ugly building? The evangelical church in America, the evangelical church around the world is desperately in need of this section of scripture. If I could pick one passage of scripture and put it out in front of every single church across the face of the earth, it'd be this one. I'm glad it's the seventh churches out of seven. It's the capstone. It's the most important passage, I think, in Revelation 1 through 3. It's the capstone over all of them. Jesus comes not walking by, not with condemnation merely, but with kind discipline and correction to a church that he loves deeply. You'll see how much in just a moment. He comes to a church that has compromised. They're not just asleep because they're beat up and weary. They are completely compromised with the world because they looked at Jesus and they said, no, Jesus, I don't want to have dinner with you anymore. When you come over to dinner, it gets awkward. There's conflict. I'm embarrassed of you. Please don't come over to dinner anymore at my house. That's what they said to him. I'm going to ask three questions. How does Jesus present himself here? Not just to the church at Laodicea, but to us. How does he present himself? Second, what does he say about Laodicea? How does he diagnose them? Not just for that church, but for us. And third, how does he ask them to respond? Not just Laodicea, but us. How do we respond? Those three questions, simple. Look at verse 14. And the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen. Jesus calls himself the Amen. He's the person who comes and says everything God is saying to everyone in the world, including this church at Laodicea. And God says to Jesus and everything Jesus says, Amen. He's the Amen. Everything Jesus says is right from God. He comes and speaks clearly, fully, truthfully, everything from God. And everybody who knows God, hears what Jesus says and says, Amen. He's the amen. 
It also says he's the faithful and true witness. Faithful and true witness means he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth and speaks the truth, but faithful means he always lives it out. Everything he's doing is in accordance with truth. Jesus never speaks the truth and then steps back and hopes somebody else will do it. He speaks the truth and then lives it out. Perfect integrity. He's the faithful and the true. It also says he's the beginning or better translated ruler of God's creation. It doesn't mean he's part of creation. Jesus was never created. That's a false Christ, one to be rejected as heresy. No, in fact, he was part of the Trinity from eternity and past, and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together created all that exists. This is saying, it's a phrase in Revelation, we'll see more and more, it's saying because he was raised from the dead, he's ruling over all creation. That's what the beginning of creation means. He's the first raised from the dead in the new creation. All who follow him will be raised with him. But I want you to see more. I said a moment ago, he has a word of love, a poignant, tender word of love for the Laodicean church and for us. This is Christ. He's coming with his hand holding the seven spirits. That's an image of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he's given the fullness of the Holy Spirit to this church. This church doesn't have a right to expect anything from him. And he's already given to them, we're told in Revelation 1, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He sends an angel to the angel of the church in Laodicea. He sends a messenger of light. The angel comes like a star, we're told in Revelation 1, to lean that star in and relight the smoldering lamp in Laodicea or maybe in your life. There's red kerosene inside the glass bowl at the bottom and there's a crank and there's a tiny little white fabric wick and the black is just barely spitting a wisp of smoke, and the chimney of glass is blackened from former fires. But the fires were with polluted fuel. So there's black covering what should be clear. That's Laodicea. That's the church of Jesus Christ in this country. That's maybe you or me from time to time or maybe right now. He sends angels to relight that lamp. He sends visions to prophets like John so that John receives them and writes them down and puts them in a letter and he sends them to all the churches. It isn't just Laodicea that reads their part. They read all that he said to the other churches and everyone reads about Laodicea and they pray for one another. Oh, that all the seven churches in this Asia Minor moment would pray for one another and that all the churches in the Northland would pray for one another, not competing in any way, but loving the fact that the glory of God in the fire of his love would be poured out on every church in this region. Amen? Amen. Would that buildings were obsolete because so many people came to Christ. Buildings can't handle it all. Oh, we have to meet at the deck. And then we'll pack that out. That's how to dream out of Revelation 3. He speaks to his church so that they hear his voice. Just him talking to them is love. He walks among the church to to see and sense how they're doing and that they might enjoy his presence. He's walking among us right now by his Holy Spirit. He's talking to you louder than I am. He's talking to you right now because he loves you and he's talking to you by his Spirit louder than I am. 
He knows all that his churches endure. He he knows how they've been tempted. He knows how you've been tempted. He knows the pressures that are going on all around you. He knows the pressure you face at work. He knows the pressure you face at home. He knows the pressures you face from spiritual attack within your own spirit. He knows. He walks among you. He loves his church at Laodicea so much that he disciplines his church out of great love for her. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He kindly arrives in this moment of time to enter and knock on the door of the church's home and ask that it would be open to him so that he might come in and eat with them. When you eat with someone in the ancient Near East, you fully affirm and accept them. They are Laodicea, for goodness sake. They've blown him off. They've rejected him. He comes back and he says, I'm knocking. I want to come in and I want to eat with you. A a rejected husband with his bride. He means, ultimately and finally, Not only to reign over them, which is tremendous love, he means to scooch over on the throne and say, come on up and reign with me. There's lots of room on my throne. Come on, y'all get up here. You're all up here with me. That's how Christ presents himself to the church at Laodicea. That's how he presents himself to you. If you feel like you are dry, you are dead, you have given yourself in to temptation and you have fallen, not just temptation, you've sinned, you've done it. And you feel like God should justifiably walk right past you. He says, I'm coming and I'm knocking and I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to receive you to myself and restore you like we once were. How does he see Laodicea? Look at verses 15 through 17. Laodicea, you might know, was a very wealthy city, small but wealthy. And they were completely confident in their wealth. And that had rubbed off on the church. They worshipped gods like Zeus, Olympus, and Apollos. And they believed worshipping those gods gave them all their wealth. They believed that worshipping those gods gave them the ability to create fabric that was black, black wool. The first time black wool was ever used to make fabric in the history of the world is right here in Laodicea. And it was all the rage everybody wanted to have something wool and black. You had to get it from the Laodiceans, and they made lots of money that way. They had a thriving university system and education, and they came up with medical innovations like eye salve. And and so people who were blind came to Laodicea so that they could get eye salve, so that they could see. 2020 vision, go to Laodicea if you want to (laughs) see. Biggest irony in the universe. The small church in Laodicea was completely impacted by this self-reliant, wealthy, love-of-money kind of community that they lived in. They loved their money so much and they were so self-reliant and self-dependent that in 60 AD when there was an earthquake, Rome, the emperor, offered money to them like the other cities to rebuild them. They said, no, we've got enough. We're good. Look at verses 15 and 16. I know your works, Christ says to the church at Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you would that, that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you, church at Laodicea, are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Your black wool is doing you no good. Your eye salve is not causing the eyes of your heart to see anything. All your money that you have amassed, that you don't need help from anyone else, that's just left you poor. And that means you are wretched. And I pity you. Christ isn't saying, I wish you were completely for me and hot or completely against me and cold. That's a misreading of this passage. It happens often, but it's not what the passage means. As we were told so clearly several weeks ago through Pastor Ali Monti's message, the community of Laodicea valued, as all of us do, at their banquets and in their uses, very hot water, which was good for sterilizing and for bathing and for cooking and for drinking drinks that are warming when needed, and very cold water is useful for refreshing and for, for chilling things and keeping things cold and keeping them to last longer. So cold and hot water is useful to everybody in Laodicea as well as everyone around the world. And yet because of the systems, it often grew filled with car uh, calcium carbonate and it became horrible tasting and lukewarm. And Christ is saying, I come to you, church at Laodicea, and I take a big drink of water of what you taste like, and I want to puke, vomit, because churches have a taste. If you're new to this church, you're trying to figure out what the taste of this church is. You're trying to figure out, is this a church where the real love of God and the power of God and the word of God and the spirit of God are here, and, and I encounter God, not just people, or is it a show for that guy? If it's the latter, flee. Christ tasted this church and he said, Blech. You make me sick. You make me gag. Puke you up. Don't think I'd use the word puke in sermons very often. Laodiceans would have puked up or spit up the water that was lukewarm and had these floaties in it, the calcium carbonate, they wouldn't have wanted it anymore. And so they understood exactly and perfectly exactly how Jesus was saying he is pitying them and wants to spit them out of his mouth. They were so wretched and pitiable, spiritually poor, unclothed with naked, in, in their nakedness, that they were pitiable and didn't even know how bad off they were. They were blind their eye salve, which made them rich, was useless for their souls. They're dollar rich and they're God poor. Like so many churches, as you read the histories of churches in Europe and as you read about how churches go through their life cycle, and you even talking about a life cycle of a church just seems sad. Like, is it supposed to get small and then grow and then have its apex and then it's supposed to go down? Is that what's supposed to happen? No. The idea is that we are ready and always leaning in and saying, Lord, come back now. Come, Lord Jesus. We're ready. We're not cooling off. We're not dead and lethargic. We don't want Christ to have to keep coming back to our church, the landing, and keep disciplining us, even though it's done in love because we are drifting into Laodicean pride over our money. They were so confident in their wealth that their, as one minister said, their affluence led to apathy. Their wealth led to waywardness. Their money trust led to wanderlust away from dependence on Christ. Timothy quickly and powerfully tells us, or rather Paul tells Timothy 
quickly and powerfully exactly how the rich ought to have their money. He, he doesn't say there ought to be no one with money. We are all above, most of us, the poverty line in the state of Minnesota here, which means we're the top 4% richest people in the world. So this word is for us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As Amos 6.1 says, Laodicea was at ease in Zion, the church there, and Christ diagnoses them very severely. Third, what does he say they should do? How must they respond? How might you and I respond? Look at verse 18. The first thing Christ tells them to do if they agree with his diagnosis is to go shopping. Did he say shopping? I'm sitting up and listening because I think that's my spiritual gift. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Oh, and make sure to pick up white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And also buy some salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Brilliant from the Lord. Just absolutely brilliant. I counsel you to buy with money you don't have, with nothing you have, gold that is faith, really valuable faith, refined by fire. That's what's gold. Increase our faith, Lord. We don't think much of you. We're embarrassed of you. We're afraid of you. We would much rather hang out and have very rich lives like the rest of our Laodicean friends. Lord, if you're going to give us eyes to see that faith is more precious than actual gold found in the ground, then open our eyes to value gold refined by fire so that we may be truly rich and give us the white garments, not the black ones, the white ones that are evidence we've been forgiven fully and we wear your righteousness, that's what the white garments are, and clothe ourselves so that we are free from the shame of the nakedness of our sin and we can come out of the closet and we can walk around and we can be filled with the joy of the Lord knowing we're rich with gold of faith and clothed in the righteousness of white garments. And put salve on our eyes. We think we see so well, but we're blind, Lord. Help us to see. That's what he wanted the Laodiceans to say and respond by verse 18. Go shopping and buy true gold from God. You don't have anything to buy with. So this is an echo, isn't it, of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You come bringing the only thing you've got, and that's your need. You come bringing the only thing you have, and that's your emptiness and your need. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. G give away every conviction, every idea, every wonderment, every thought, every confusion, every lie that's clouding your life that you think is precious and valuable. You're hanging on to it because you want to speak it sometime. Give it all up for the kingdom of God. 
If you and I can't see the kingdom of God is like that treasure in a field, the gold refined by fire, then let's ask the Lord to open our eyes that the kingdom and all that God has for us in Christ is infinitely more valuable than all the pleasurable experiences we could have on earth for 10,000 years. It's infinitely more valuable than all the lifetimes we could invest in making money for ourselves. It's more valuable than all the worlds you and I could imagine. How does the Apostle Paul help the Corinthians be free from the love of money? He says, don't boast in money or boast in men. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, whether don't boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Do you see the logic? You shouldn't lust after something you've already got. You shouldn't covet after something that's already yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. The present and the future are yours. All the people that you want to follow after, like Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, they're all yours. Oh, by the way, the world is yours too. And then it gets better. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Buy truth, the Proverbs writer Solomon says, and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. Give up everything in order to go buy that field of gold. Spiritual shopping undercuts idolatry and fuels a white-hot passion. It's the first thing Jesus tells the Laodicean church and maybe you right now to do. Buying gold and white garments and salve from God, it's the very same act as repentance. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That repentance is the same thing I just described, turning away from from lesser valuable uh, attractions and fixing our eyes and joy and hopes upon the treasures and pleasures of Christ himself. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, David says in Psalm 16. That's the repentance I'm talking about. That's the repentance Jesus is referring to here in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's interesting that that word zealous means to boil. Now we're talking heat. So let your repentance be like a rolling boil. Let the steam come off your repentance. You always know when you're bumping into somebody who's repenting. (laughs) You always know that they seem to have a fresh, new passion and white hot light and heat for God. You can tell if someone in their devotions or in their time at church or in their time in the day or night before are walking with the Lord and they're, cl- they're often and frequently boiling with repentance before the Lord, they always have the fragrant aroma of something delicious cooking in their lives. This is a boiling word. It's meant to say, Laodiceans, get excited, get intense, raise the Fahrenheit of the temperature of your love for me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said. Are you hungry for righteousness today? Are you thirsting for righteousness? Did you come today because your life is empty of what you really need to live it? Your marriage, your parenting, your work, your ministry, your friendships, they're empty of what you really need. That's why I'm here. I need God and his righteousness. I'm greedy. I'm addicted to him. Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with what? 
all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, same word for boiling, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Let every hot cup of coffee, let every hot cup of tea you ever have cause you to say, Lord, make my love for you burn this hot. Spiritual shopping leads to zealous repentance, and that leads to the third instruction our Lord gives for the Laodiceans to do. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So open the door. Open the door. Buying from God means going to Him. Repenting zealously means turning away from everything that hinders you from going to Him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. While it is this patient, quiet season of grace, before He comes back in His second coming, He comes to the door of churches. He, he's, he's going to denominations and he's going to church gatherings around Duluth and across the face of the United States. He's going to uh, gatherings and ministries and conferences and denominations and he's knocking right now. Humbly, quietly, but completely and fully in control as our master and husband, the Lord is knocking on the door of the evangelical church in 2022. And he's knocking on the door of this church and on my heart's door and maybe yours. He's making an invitation to this church at Laodicea at this time. I'm coming to you. You have, you have sinned equally to those who were drowned in the flood in Noah's time. And I'm not coming with rain or fire. I'm coming with a knock on the door. Just be stunned by the mercy of Christ here. Be stunned by the patient mercy of our living Christ for the world he has created. Put away confused interpretations of, of this passage suggesting an obsequious boyfriend fidgeting outside the door hoping to be let in. Put away confused interpretations picturing an eager salesman hat in hand hoping we'll accept his offers. No, 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 no. We just read last week, he's got a key of David on his belt and he opens every door and shuts it. No one opens or shuts the doors he opens. He's the master of the house. He rules over all that's inside and the house and all that's outside and all that happens. He's the sovereign owner coming in peace and in grace to a wayward worldly church. He comes knocking because it's stunning, breathtaking mercy and love and patient kindness. He means to serve them. Here's what, this is what blew my mind about this passage. Jesus is here using vocabulary in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's vocabulary that comes from Luke's description of Jesus parable back in Luke 12. Listen, you'll hear the same words, but notice how beautiful 
the intent of Christ is as he's doing the same knocking in Luke 12. Listen as I read. Luke says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Same context. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him, all the same vocabulary, at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And and you'd think, well, of course they're blessed. That's wonderful. They're awake. He's coming to them. They know he's coming. They owe him uh, the the riches of how they've worked his land and produced a, a return, a profit for him. And they honor him as master. Of course, you see the picture. But that isn't how wonderful it gets. That's, That's the beginning. And then it goes further. Listen to what Luke says. Truly, I say to you, the master coming back to the house, he, the master, will dress himself for service. He puts on a servant's cloak. And he will have them, the servants, recline at the table. No, 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 you all sit. I'm going to take on your apron, he says. And he will come and serve them. He's coming to the church at Laodicea and he's moving by his spirit into your heart right now because he loves you so much he wants to serve and bless you. He doesn't need you to do anything. He needs you to sit in your weakness and in your emptiness and in your Laodicean blindness and say, Lord, you have to do it all. I'm empty. You have to take over and do everything in my life that I can't do for myself to cause me to love you like you deserve. Some say this is his future coming. I don't think it's his future coming. I think his future coming is going to be a bit more brutal. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an angel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then there's this glorious picture that we'll get in Revelation 19 of his second coming. Listen to how different it is. This, is, this Revelation 3.20 picture is a tender preparation Come, return to me, Laodicea, return to me, all who need returning at the landing, because there is a future coming which is going to be far more drastic. Listen to it. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. You know those names. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he's on a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. You know it. King of kings and Lord of lords. So this Revelation 3.20 is a preparation for that second coming. This week, in a news story online, I saw a photo of a young man among a throng of pro-death protesters. Maybe you've seen these pictures. He was carrying a cardboard sign. On it was a message written with a Sharpie pen that read, If Jesus Christ comes back to earth... 
we'll kill him again. I'd like to see you try. The young man didn't know how good his theology was. Yep. His name is Jesus Christ. You got that right. Yep. He came the first time. Yep. You killed him the first time. And he's coming back because he's still alive. You couldn't keep him dead. Yep. Good theology. Good as the devils have. But your heart is so dark. Open the door. Open the door. There's no part of my life, Lord, that I don't want you to rule over. There's nothing about my hopes and dreams for my future. There's nothing about the way I'm going to interpret my past. There's nothing about my experiences today that I don't want to bring you glory. I'm not holding any grudges. I don't have any secret plans for sin. I am not going to believe or carry on any lie that's exposed by your truth. My life is completely yours. I'm completely open so that when you come back, I will be among the bride whom you love and cherish and bring to yourself. Verse 21 ends with the last thing to do, to conquer. It really means to do all that he's already said, to buy gold and white garments and salve from him, to repent zealously and open the door to him. All that is conquering. It's all summed up in the word conquering. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There's room up on the throne with me. Don't just come and be ruled over by me. Come and rule with me all of you. Let's just all scooch onto the throne. There's room for everyone. How do we know what pleases Jesus in Revelation 3, 14 through 22? We know how he told them to repent. What what does Laodicea look like after they repented? What does the landing look like now that we're agreeing with our Lord as He has shown us Himself and assessed us with His diagnosis and told us how to respond. How should it look? You could, you could course through the Bible and find good answers to that. You might even think, I, I can imagine how revivals look around the history of the church. That too might be helpful. But we don't need to look any farther than what's right open in front of us. Because we can remember back, can't we, to the previous six churches and all the things Jesus commended and encouraged and lifted up as pleasing to him in those previous six churches. And we know exactly what the church at Laodicea should give themselves to do and we know exactly what we ought to do. This is why I call the church and the letter to Laodicea the capstone of this address Jesus gives to the churches. Remember he's pleased by the theological depth and the precision of Ephesus? Remember how he's pleased by the spiritually rich, trial-enduring, fearless faith at Smyrna? Remember how he was pleased how they preserved his name and faith and witness at Pergamum? Remember what pleased him at Thyatira? It was love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Remember the efforts of wide and broad witness that he commended the church at Sardis for? And remember how at Philadelphia he was pleased when they depended on him in weakness and had a rock-solid grasp of his word. If you agree with what this 
sevenfold series of church letters says, you're going to say with me, Lord, I can't do this. And he will say, yes, I know. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But rest in me, trust in me, seek me, and I will be found by you. I will do it for you. I will do it through you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for I am within you to cause you to will and to work for my good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the seventh letter, the letter to Laodicea. Sad in some ways, but oh, so sweet and poignant, so tender and powerful. Revive me, revive us. Don't don't let people 50 years from now be wondering what to do with this building. Cause us to remain leaning in and white hot and faithful to you no matter whose gifts are being used to strengthen and bless this church. Let every person who's involved with the life of this church point everyone else to the glories of Jesus Christ and him alone and do so until you return. I'm asking for a massive movement of your spirit among us, Lord. You might have it that we would birth a new church someday. Let that same church, different in in its DNA and personality and style, be covered with and filled with the same beautiful spirit you've given to us and more. Let all the churches in Cloquet and Esco and Carleton, Proctor and Hermantown, Duluth and Superior and all the Northland region be filled with the Spirit of the living God to go out and love the way we've been taught to through the book of Revelation. Cause greater white-hot zeal for God to well up inside of us than we've ever known or imagined to ask for. Because your presence is here with us, not to discipline, but to disciple not to, not to correct, but to comfort. Not to judge, but to strengthen. Don't let us grow proud, Lord. Don't let us grow confident in money. Don't let us grow arrogant over all the blessings you've already given, and many they are. Keep us aware of our need and our weakness and our brokenness and crying out with desperation to you often, for the good of all that are here, for the good of all of who come and link their arms to us, and for the good of all those whom we speak to, and for the glory of your name over all the earth. In Jesus' name, and everyone said together, Amen. Let's stand and